So at uh, the beginning of the summer, one got married, at the end of the summer, the other one got married. My pockets are completely empty. Mark, <laughs> however, is completely full. They were both spectacular. But what I want to say is, is we have the most amazing staff in family church that I've ever seen. I'm telling you, we go away for a long period of time, and thank you, family, for letting me go and do family. Right? I'm, I'm not insisting that I be here in a way that I can't really be family with my children that are a thousand or plus miles away. And so thank you for letting me go and let Julie go and really getting to be a, a major part of what happened like it should be. Right? So it was really cool. And, and I have this image in my mind of what the staff does when two of a fairly lean staff are gone. You know, we, we don't have a lot of people on staff. And what happens is I have this image of Everybody's just so incredible and talented and they know what they're doing and they're so comfortable with things that they just sort of move into the area where the void is and they just sort of meld into it in a way that it ends up completely covering again. Now, ultimately, yeah, you need that gifting back and you need that person back. But the way that we cover for each other is unbelievable. And I just want to say thank you to the staff who it does mean more work. It does mean more. And thank you. And it's just cool that the church as a body lets us do it. Now let me say also, we could never get away with that as a staff unless being run by everybody here. The fact is, is the way everybody steps up, the way everybody knows what they're supposed to do, and when they need to figure something out, and when they need to do something, they figure it out, they get it done. We, get, you just, we don't get any calls saying, what do we do? People just figure it out. And make it work. And it's a family. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for the love and the support and care for one another that we get here. And I want to thank you for doing that so that we had incredible God times. We were gone. I, I Skyped in on both of the ones, Church of the Park too, but all three, but in both of the ones that were held here. And it was just amazing what happened those mornings. The presence of God was just so prevalent. Let me say one last thing to two people. The first one is, which is Patricia Lyon, and she hates that I'm saying this, but I got to tell you, that was the first time that that woman has ever preached, and I, you could, you could have never, ever known that. It would be like she did this all the time, and what I asked her to do at the very beginning was, as I said, I want to see God. You are an elder. You get what's going on with God. You get what's going on with life. I want to see God, and man, I was talking, actually, it was with Kevin, and we were talking about the sermon after it had happened, and what he said to me was, as he said, right towards the very beginning, I don't know if you remember it, I'm not going to repeat it, but right at the very beginning, she said something that was so vulnerable, so transparent, and so real. Kevin said, she owned me. And then, she just delivered. This is a real thing. This is really important. And she brought it home so beautifully. So thank you, Patricia. Many times before, uh, we've heard you and everything else. I love what you bring. I love your content. I love your perspective. I love the angle that you take at God. It's always so joy. I do have to say, though, and you've always preached well. That's why we have you keep coming back. But I have to tell you, I just different this time. It was so, I felt like I was in the hands of the master, and I don't mean you, I mean God. You know what I mean? I felt like he just took me on this incredibly important journey. 
So this is what we are. <laughs> you know, just incredible talent. I'm looking out and I'm seeing faces of people that I want you to be up here. I want you to be preaching. I want you to be giving to the body what God has invested in you. Because we have bench depth here. Okay? It's an amazing group of people. So having said all that, thank you. And I guess actually this is probably the time we should be starting the sermon. But leave it in there. I don't care. Okay? So, so here we go. And what I want to do is, is I want to say, uh, I'm going to show you some home pictures, right? This is going to be, you know, right? You go over to somebody's house and they show you these pictures. You're going, I don't care about these pictures. <laughs> but this is actually tied into the sermon. So I'll try not to bore you, but I do want you to see something because, like I say, the sermon is, is going to come off of this. This is the setting where they were. This is a, there's a, there's a, uh, that's the fishing pond. And then on the other side of this land bridge, there's a uh, swimming pond. And it was an old rock quarry that's filled. And as you can see, it was incredibly beautiful. And this is my, just, I just couldn't love her more. But there's my daughter. And everybody was dressed for it to be like normal at this time of year, which would be about 100 degrees or 90-some degrees and about 120% humidity because of all the corn and everything else. It was, it was such a perfect temperature that the entire night, short sleeve shirts, you weren't too hot, you weren't too cold, it wasn't humid, it was perfect. But this is them actually getting married. I'm doing the vow part right there. Uh, but So we had the ceremony. And then I, I wanted you to see something here. You see the chandeliers in the tree? When you see Julie, tell her, nobody does chandeliers in trees. Okay? So beautiful. But I really want you to see, is you see all those candles on the table right there? Every table in the whole place, and you can't even see, you don't, you know, there's a huge tent over here and a huge area over here. There's, you only are seeing about a quarter of what there was right there. And, but there were these tables everywhere. And, and this is, that's the wrong color, the lens on that camera. But this is what it looked like all night. So it had this golden glow from thousands of candles, like 20 or 25 on every table. And they were spread out, as you can see, all over this lot. And there's a building over here. And, and they went way over there to the other pond. And there was just hundreds of people. I don't know how many were there, but it was way over 300. And, and you can, there was just this golden glow to the entire night. And then, now this is just, okay, I just have to show you this, because thank God not at my expense, but Chris and Shal's friends love them so much that they, they put on, at their expense, and their, they float this little boat out into that lake I showed you a second ago. And then right over your head, they blow up all of these fireworks. And I'm telling you, it went on for about a, it was at least 20 minutes, maybe 30. And, and it was better than most municipalities. At this little, you can hear people cheering. And they're just blowing up everywhere and all this. And now that, I just have to tell you, it was magical. <laughs> and I don't mean that as, as in not God. I mean that magical as in... God was just so present in everything that happened. It was just a magical time to the point that there's a, a guy who grew up there. He's now probably close to his 80s, if not, he's late 70s. You know him, okay? And he's, he actually was a kid that grew up on the farm, real smart, went to D.C., actually became an undersecretary, which is one step below secretary. So he became a very big wig in D.C. and so on. When he retired, he came back to this community with his high-powered Washington lobbyist wife. And he comes back, and they live in this little town. Oakland, Iowa is 1,300 people. 
Carson is 800 people, and Doney is 350 people. Okay, so that's the size of these communities that have gathered together this event. And he came up after, as they were leaving, which was quite late at night, and he came up and he said, he said, Chris and Shalimar have given a gift to our community. And there was, there was something in that statement about community that when Julie told me that, it totally flashed on something I'm just about to talk to you about after the prayer. But what happened was, is I went, that's the word. There was a community, come with unity. There was a, there was a, you were there. There was just this thing that was happening in people. And, and, and I'll go into it in just a second. But I just want to say, as I was praying about what I was supposed to say today, God just brought something so precious home to me. I want to say it this way. We all understand how important community is. I think Lake Sam, I just talked about what a wonderful family it is. We get how important community is. But what if it's so much more important than we get that thinking about it the way that we normally do is to actually miss what it actually is? What if it's so much more important to our well-being than we ever had any idea that understanding how important it is would cause us to embrace it in an entirely different fashion. Watch and see what I think the Lord is going to do here. Uh, it's amazing. So with that, who's our prayer? Okay. Uh, Alex, this is great. Alex, who has stepped up and, and is heading up the council. And just Alex and Chelsea both. There's two people that came in. This is why this is perfect. When you guys showed up, you dove in to make community here. You made community here. You stepped up. You went into areas. You did things. And you made a family here. And you contributed to the family that was here. So perfect person to do this. Pray for the sermon. Lift up another church. Father God, we come before you this morning and, and thank you for pouring out on us, for bringing us together. God, I ask you to I ask you to help us own it. Help us know it. That your blood is covering us. Thank you. You are, you are making us new. Making Thank us you. whole. Father, I ask too that you that you pour out on E3 Church in Pullman. On Pastor Doug over there. As a new generation of people learn to own their faith. Like Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great prayer, Alex. The amen that you heard earlier was because Bruce was saying amen to Ralph Hedenhausen, who just walked in the door from Germany. And he's got a great new job in the whole nine yards, so great to have you here, Ralph. Okay, and Bruce, I second your amen. All right, now I want to show you one more picture of this wedding because this is not the picture I have in my mind, but this is the closest photo that I've got, Okay. Now, you can see, I don't know how many people are in that picture, but I'm going to say 80 maybe, right? So, the wedding was at 5.30. The fireworks, what, 9.30 probably? So, we're five hours later, plus that, when this is taking, you see how dark it is. And it's, so it's about 10 o'clock, and I'm standing 
over by where the ceremony was, looking over at the structure and the tent and all the tables out and the chandeliers. And it was that golden hue, not this one that's a little more black and white. But it was this golden hue of everything. But as, as magical, as pretty, as beautiful as that scene was, the thing that struck me was a little bit what you see here, which is look at how the people are clumped up. It was two, three, four people. I, I was looking across. It's five hours after the wedding has started, four to five hours. There's at least, if, let's say if there was 350 that came, there was still 300 people there five hours later. And they were clumped up in groups of three, four, five. And everywhere I looked was these clumps of people that were talking to each other five hours later. Now, the reason why that struck me was is because I do a lot of weddings. And this is no slam on a, any wedding I've ever done, many of whom I've done here. And you're here. But let me tell you how a metropolitan wedding goes as opposed to a small town wedding. Okay? A metropolitan wedding is this. You're getting together with a few people that you know, and you talk to them. But then there's a whole bunch of people that you've never met before and that you're never going to see again. And if you're an extrovert like me, you make the effort to go up and say hi to them. But if you're an introvert, that's even hard. And even if you're an extrovert, after about three hours of this cocktail talk, you're done. Right? You're just done. And so there's a flow that we do in weddings. And we've got to keep the flow going. Here's how the flow goes. Real simple. There's some variation in the theme. The bottom line is you have the ceremony. And then you have a little time before the reception where you do a little cocktail talk. And everybody kind of chats it up. But then, thank God, here comes the food. And then you sit down for the food. And then you eat. And then before you're done with your food, somebody stands up and does a couple of toasts. So you keep the program moving. Somebody does a couple of toasts. And then they do a first dance with the dad and then people start dancing and then after a little while in the dancing you stop it and you bring out the garters and the bouquet and you throw them and then you cut the cake and then people start eating the cake and right about there see you in a normal metropolitan wedding between the time that the ceremony started and the cake gets cut you've lost about 30 percent of your crowd it's about how many people will slip out sometime during that right and when you get to the dance part, heavy-duty DJ, band, whatever it is, you're down to about 40% of the original people. And that's fine because it's a bunch of really good friends, family, and so on, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. But it, what occurred to me at this wedding when I saw people clumped up five, six hours later, what occurred to me was is at a metropolitan wedding, we're all doing, it's fun, it's great, you see people, it's fine. But there's this thing missing that's called community. Because at this wedding, let me tell you who those 300 people were with some exceptions, but minor. These are people who went to grade school together. And then junior high, and then high school. Julie's graduating class was 33 people. And to this day, without any work whatsoever, she can tell you those 33 people. And she, for the most part, she can tell you where they live, what they do. And she hasn't seen many of them in 30 years. It doesn't matter. These people grew up together. And it's not like they're just seeing each other for the first time, so they want to talk and catch up. The fact is, they just saw them at the grocery store. They just saw them at the... Because when you pull into the gas station, you're, you're filling up your tank talking to a guy across the tank because you grew up with them. 
whether they're older or younger or anything else, you're part of a small community. See? So when you go to dinner, when you go to lunch, whatever you do, you go to a memorial, you go to a wedding, you go to a graduation party, whatever it is, you're seeing the same people all the time. So it's not like, it's not like they had, uh, you know, you feel like in a metropolitan wedding sometimes that you've run out of things to say. Like, you know, and, and what I'll usually do is I'll find somebody really interesting and then I'll sit down with them and I'll try and have a deep conversation with them because that's how I do that, right? That's my way of doing that. But here's the point. In this wedding, it's not just me doing that. Everybody's doing that. And do remember, these are farmers, so a lot of them aren't big talkers. So what are they doing hanging around with each other still five and six hours later? What are they doing? Think about it for a second. Now, here's the stereotype of a small town. Everybody knows each other just a little too well. <laughs> so they've, they've, you know, they, uh, you know, I don't really, you know, that person is kind of, and they've, and it's gossipy, right? News travels fast in a small town, and it does. And so you see what I'm saying? In a small town, the stereotype is, and the stereotype is there because it's real. Stereotypes are usually there because there's something of truth in them. And the stereotype is gossipy and, and the kind of judgmental and, you know, they're nice to each other in the face but not behind the back and, you know, da-da-da, right? But here's the, here's, the, here's the thing that goes beneath the stereotype. And that's true with every stereotype, by the way. Every stereotype is actually a superficial, generalized understanding of things. And underneath that is something that is actually counterbalancing the stereotype in some fashion, which is why the community stays together. It's not just because they live there. There's something else going on. And if I were to call it something, and I'm calling it this advisedly because we're going to be talking about it here more deeply in a second, these people are actually bonded with each other, even if they don't like each other. <laughs> Philip Yancey says, I'd prefer to live in a small town. Because in a large city, I can find people that are like me, a sufficient number of people that are like me, that I can have a full range of friends, as many as I want, and they're like me. So I like them. In a small town, there aren't that many people that are like me, and if I'm going to have friends at all, I'm going to have to learn how to be friends with people that aren't like me, and that I don't even necessarily maybe like naturally. But we grew up together. There's a, there's, okay, we're driving home from the rehearsal dinner. There's an accident, a bad one. A car hit another car and pitched off about a 30-foot thing and was down, not quite in the corn, but way down. The kid in the back seat was actually seriously injured and to this moment is still fighting brain stuff where they're still, they think he's going to live now. They were unsure about that for a short period of time. Now, that kid, think about this, that kid, every person from those three communities doesn't just know the name of that boy, they know the boy. And they're heartbroken. It doesn't matter about the superficial crap anymore. What matters is, is that family that I know and I grew up with is in trouble and I'm connected to them. And when they bring over a casserole to help a meal so that you can do other things, they don't just bring over a casserole and drop it off. 
they come in and they sit down and they talk with you. And they're at the hospital. Hundreds of people coming and going in the hospital as they will sit with the family. The entire community experiences things together because they're connected. Because they're bonded. Now I want you to keep that thought in your mind because this is the thought that we're going after. But I want to show you something. I'm going to totally shift gears on you now. But I want to show you something which some of you may have seen. This is a TED Talk. And this is everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. Now, I'm going to summarize. You know what TED Talk is? It says 15 to 18 minute things, the thing I need to work on. <laughs> and they're fascinating by experts. And this guy is an expert in addiction and what's happening in addiction. And here's the summary of what he does in his TED Talk, which I'll try and do shorter than he actually did. The, I thought about just running a TED Talk because it'd probably be shorter than my explanation. But here's what he says. Watch this. He says, the way that we think about addicts is, is that there's this chemical, heroin, cocaine, meth, whatever. There's this chemical that gets into your brain and when it starts interacting with your brain chemicals, at some point in time, it gets hooked. The chemistry of the brain gets hooked on this other chemical. And that's why we say people are hooked on drugs. See, even our language. You get, there's a chemical hook. And once you get that chemical hook in you, well, you're an addict, right? Now, one of the reasons why people think of it that way is because there was a test that was done back in the 50s by a guy, and what he did was is he took a bunch of rats and he put one rat in a cage, and in, in each cage was a bottle of water, and then a bottle of water that was mixed with either heroin or cocaine. In every instance, every single rat would drink from the drugged water until they died. Stop eating and the whole thing. They would drink from it till they stopped eating and died. Every single rat. So they said, see, this is addiction. It's got control over you. Well, here's what happened. A few years later, we had this enormous problem that we thought we were going to have. And that was veterans returning from Vietnam. Because in Vietnam, heroin was as prevalent as candy. Everywhere. And the lowest estimates were that 20% of the troops were very serious heroin addicts. So we thought we were going to have tens of thousands of people returning from that war having all kinds of serious addiction problems, not just now, but for the rest of their life. And what happened was, instead, is that these people came home and sure, there were some people that still had addiction problems. But the percentage was incredibly low because what most of the people did was they came home, they got back into their communities, they got back into their social relationships, and they just quit doing the drug. They just quit. Now, that shouldn't work if it's, an, if it's a hook, right? Now, I'm going to say something right now, and, and understand, if you're in... There's, Plenty of people in here that know AA or are involved in AA or something like that. AA is absolutely taking advantage of what this guy is saying, even though maybe you don't know it. Because he's not saying that you don't need to go to AA, but, and I'm going to say something very good about AA, but they're doing exactly what he's saying, just in a way that we didn't know. We thought AA was about, you know, just keeping you from doing the hook again and getting hooked again and so on. But there's actually maybe something else entirely different happening in the AA meeting. 
But let me just go through this presentation of what he's saying. What he's saying is, is he says, all of a sudden, we got all these guys that are returning. They're not having any problems. Right about the same time that was happening, a guy looked at that rat experiment and he went, I wonder if maybe we're, we got a result which we're interpreting wrongly. So he did another test. And this time, he created what he called Ratland. And Ratland had uh, slides and wheels and mazes and tunnels, everything that rats love. Okay, plenty of food, everything else, all of which was very nice, but you know they control in science, you know when we're doing science, we control for variables. The key variable that turned out in Ratland was lots of other rats. Ratland was not a single rat in a cage alone. Ratland had a whole bunch of rats in it where they could socialize and form their things and have their wars and have sex and do all the things that rats do in community. Now, there was still a bottle of water hanging in this cage and there was still a bottle of water laced with cocaine or heroin. But guess what? In all the experiments they did, not one rat ever, not one. It wasn't like some of them were kind of prone to addiction and so they, not one rat Ever. Once they tasted the drugged water, they knew something was wrong with it, and they quit tasting it ever. They no, no rat ever died from it. They just didn't even drink it. What's going on? The variable, it turns out, was the other rat. It was a connection. We now know enough about brain chemistry to know something. When I make a connection with somebody, when we get into a relationship, when we get to the point to where we're not just casual Facebook, uh, you know, I mean, I like you and you like me, but we really don't know each about anything. When you get to the place to where you've got a relationship with somebody to where if you got sick, somebody, not somebody, somebody, several people would come to your home, make you meals, sit with you, help you, be with you. You know, one of the things that I hear in this church all the time is somebody gets sick and somebody has a problem. And afterwards, in a Facebook post, what I'll hear is, thank you to all the people who came over and stayed with me. Not just dropped something off, not just did something nice, but that took time and sacrifice to be with them. The guy goes on. And what he says is, he says, going from rats to human beings, can we make the transition? Turns out we can Watch this. In the 1960s is when we decided that drugs were bad enough that we needed to make them illegal. Before that, you could buy Coca-Cola with cocaine in it. Okay? But then we decided that's probably not cool. So we, and then we, and then we made it illegal, and we started incarcerating and interdicting. We interdicted the flow of drugs, and we started incarcerating people. Now think about what happens when you incarcerate somebody. You take them out of their family, out of their social setting, out of places where they might have relationships, and you take them and put them in an isolated situation with other people that are similarly broken, and then when they get out, you're still ostracized. There's still something about you that doesn't let you go back into because you're now a prisoner, a felon. There's something, you see what I mean? So you don't get to go back into quote-unquote polite society. And... I was going to say screw polite society, but I decided not to say that, and then I said it anyway. <laughs> polite society is that one that is superficial. 
the real society, real culture is the one where people care. Now, there's people who have had people in your family that were, were addicted and they were uh, stealing from you and everything else and you did something called an intervention, right? And we did one literally these last two weeks, you know, and helped somebody we've been praying for for decades to get into rehab. And, but now watch what happens with an, with, an inter, with an intervention. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying watch what happens and be aware of it. Because what happens in intervention, what you're doing is you're going to all the people that have the deepest relationships with them and you're saying, if you don't stop, we're going to cut our relationships with you. And usually the person will go ahead and go to rehab, but that doesn't necessarily stop them because it wasn't them that wanted to stop. It was other people, right? Here's what's going on. When you are deeply connected to somebody, you're releasing the same kind of chemicals in your brain that the drugs are interacting with. You're actually fulfilling the need that the drug is fulfilling if you don't have it. When you have relationship with somebody, there's something that's going off inside of you that is connecting you with them, bonding you to them, making you one with them in a way that you don't need the drug. It's when a person is estranged from other people when they're separated from other people, when there's a disconnect from other people to where they're not sufficiently bonding with family or friends or even children. When you're not bonding, when there's something in you that is disconnected, that is separated, there is this angstiness. There's something wrong. When you're alone, it's bad. There's something going on. And this is even people that like to be alone sometimes. They still have this biochemical, this need, and I, say, I suggest to you that biochemistry is the superficial way of talking about it. It actually goes much deeper than that. There is this thing that is happening that causes you to be fulfilled to the point that you don't need the drug. Now, is this true? Right? Nice theory. Is, does it work? Well, guess what? Portugal was watching, as was every Western, Western industrialized nation, was watching their addiction rates rise more and more the more they interdicted and the more that they incarcerated. The more they did this, the more that the addiction rates raised. And so what happened was Portugal said, you know what? we got to do something different. Listen to this. They decriminalized every drug. There's no illegal drugs there. What they did then was they took all the money they were spending on interdiction and incarceration and they put it to re-socializing the person. Is it psychological? Is there some reason why this person can't connect with other people because of psychology? Let's get them the help that they need, not to fix their drug habit, but to fix their estrangement from other people. What's wrong in them that's causing them to disconnect and to feel this angst that they're medicating with the drug? See it? In fact, they go so far as to say this. They say, uh, this is a good one for you guys, computer programmers, right? So here's what happens. What they do is they say, rather than take that a computer programmer and putting them in jail and isolating them and making them virtually unhirable by any company that would have normal computer programmers in it, what the, what the government of Portugal does is they go to the computer, the guy that's making, that wants the programmers, and they say, this is an addict. We realize that's a risky situation for you. It doesn't always work. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay two-thirds of that guy's salary so that you will put him in your company with other people that are like him or her. You see it? 
so that they'll make friends with people that are like-minded, so that they'll start to build a community, so they'll start to build a, a culture, so they'll start to make connections that start to go beyond just what we do in common. They start caring about one another. They start caring for one another. They start doing this bonding. They did that 15 years ago. Every other industrialized nation, including America, which is right now going through yet another spike in heroin addiction due to all the pharmaceutical heroin now. And what they did in, in, in Portugal, their addiction rate has halved. It's not to say it got rid of every problem. But you see what they're doing? Now, here's what they actually did. The world actually found God. They don't know that it's God. But they found God. Think about this. The last prayer that Jesus said, the one that he wanted in our minds was, may, it starts this way, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That's not a casual connection. I'm in you, you're in me. May they be one like that. Now, here's what, here's what Jesus should have said because here's how we think about Jesus. And I want to say, everything you always thought about the gospel turns out to be wrong too. Because here's how we think about the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ reconciling us with God. Clearly it is. Don't, don't misunderstand me and say it isn't. But that's only half the story. Why didn't Jesus start his first prayer with, may they be one with us, Father, and then be one with one another? Because that is the flow of how you get to be one with one another. You let God change you, and then you can connect with other people in a new way because you're a new being. So there is truth in all of that. But do you see where Jesus starts with it? He doesn't start with reconcile to God. He starts with, I want to reconcile, I want people to be reconciled with one another. Let them be one like you and I are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in eternal fellowship, bonding, connection, depth. See it? Now what this is, when Jesus is praying this, he's praying the gospel story. And we're just emphasizing the one side of it. You can emphasize the other side too, which is the one we always emphasize. Us reconciling with God. But look at this. From the very beginning, it's always been clear that there was another thing God was doing. Then God said, this is chapter 20, verse 26 of chapter 1, the beginning, creation. God said, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image according to our, plural, likeness. You see what he's saying? Think about it this way. If the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if one was missing from the Trinity, what would God be? Would he be the same as he is? Clearly not. Look at the first thing that God ever said about creating us and who we were. It was that we're to be in relationship with each other. In fact, that verse goes on to say, male and female, he created them. Plural. Relationship. Depth. Bonding. See it? Now watch. What happens, of course, is, is that the first time, God, God, first day, God makes everything, it is good. Second day, it is good. Third day, it is good. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth, sixth day, it is good. But a little bit later, he comes back and says the first thing that he said about his own creation that was bad. It is not good for the man to be alone. 
He always had in mind for him to be male and female. We just saw it in verse 26, and this is actually chapter 2 now. But do you see what he's pointing out to us? Do you see what he's emphasizing from the very beginning of the Bible? Relationship with each other. When you think about what Christ did on the cross, is that what you think about? Because I don't. I think about him reconciling me with God. I don't think about the fact that he's reconciled me with each other. I think that's kind of like the byproduct. It's not the byproduct. It's what he intended from the very beginning because it's who he is. And he made us in his likeness. And when we broke the fellowship with him by walking our own way, he gave us free will to do so and we walked away. When he broke that, watch what happens now. While they were in the field, Cain, and Abel, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now that we've broken the vertical, we break the horizontal. And do you understand that when Jesus prays, make them one as you and I are one, he's referring all the way back to the brokenness that happened not just between us and God, but between us and each other. Do you see it? His emphasis, his highlight. Make them one with one another. They need this in order to be who I made them to be. In fact, he goes so far as to say, this guy asked him, he's trying to trap him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And I do want to say, that always ought to be first. But listen to how Jesus says it. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. So how important is this second one compared to the first one? Yeah, thank you. It's just as important. He never meant it to be just vertical. And that's okay. How many people do you know? Because I know a lot. I'm from Wyoming. Okay, there's not that many people. It's hard to get to know somebody else. And there's all these, there's all these cowboys in Wyoming that have the best relationship with God that you could ever have, and they can't stand anybody else. And anybody who's healthy looks at him and says, you think you have a good relationship with God, but the word itself says, if you say that you hate your brother, you don't have God in you. You don't get it at all. You see how deep this is? He's saying our connection with him is matched in importance by our connection with one another. Do you think that way? Because I can tell you, I don't. Then what he did, having pointed it out in Genesis, having brought it through, having emphasized it in Jesus, here's what God did. He made a community. This is what he always does. He always makes a community look like what he wants it to look like, and then he lets us try and get back there. So the first Christian community, guess what they look like? Look at what's being emphasized. Is it their relationship with God that's being emphasized in Acts? That's there. Obviously it's there. But look what's being highlighted and emphasized. Look what's being brought to our attention by the Holy Spirit. Because here's the way he says it. These people committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together. The common meal, the prayers. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home with each other. People in your home. I can't wait, Vincent, to see you this afternoon. Every meal, a celebration, exuberant, joyful. They praised God. When they were in 
fellowship with each other, not just God. When they were in fellowship with each other, it brought joy. It brought happiness. It brought community with oneness. Do you see it? You, your, your, your borders, I don't know what to call them, your family, the other people that lived in your house for three years, okay? You were sad when they left. You're supposed to be happy. That's the way the world works, right? The world works. People leave. Wow, we get our space back. We helped them. It was good. That's fine. But come on. I understand. <laughs> but right? There's something that God did with you that made your life better. It made your life what it's supposed to look like. I can't understand why I'm not happy as I sit here alone. And do Facebook. Now watch how, watch how together they are. I, by the way, I love Facebook, so I'm not ragging on it. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying I want you to understand, you know, the goal, Facebook is a way to keep in touch. But you need to reinforce it with the real. You need to reinforce it with the time, face-to-face, hugs and love. This is how oneness they were. Everyone around was in awe. Think about that for a second. Everybody that was watching what was happening was in awe. Now, it talks about miracles right there, but I want to say, because it says it later, and I'm going to bring it up. But here's what happened. People seeing people in genuine relationship were in awe. But look at how one they were. The kind of one that they had was the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned, and they pulled their resources so that each person's need was met. I want to make something clear to you. This is just vulnerable, transparent time, right? I stand to inherit not very much anymore. It used to be quite a bit, and it's just not anymore. Just the way the economy's gone and things have happened and everything else. I stand to inherit a little bit of money, and I lived rich at one point in my life, and I've lived poor ever since. And the thought of having a little bit of inheritance and having a little bit of money and not being sort of on the edge financially all the time is very attractive to me. And the thought of having to give that money away is very not attractive to me. Okay? I don't like it. And I don't want that to happen. And if I get a little bit of money, it's like if you have a lot of money, you can say, well, I can share plenty. I'll still have some. Right? But when you also get a little, there's a little bit more of a, right? Now, let me just tell you how stupid that is. Because if everybody has everything they need, what is it that you need? If everybody has everything that they need, well, here's what the problem is. There's stuff I want. <laughs> and I don't think that God is going to give it to me. The God who made the universe and has carefully, cal carefully balanced it so that life is possible. The God who made a world that is overflowing with abundance so that I would learn the generosity of him. You know the reason why God can't give us the more? By the way, he comes to David after David has taken something of his own. And he comes to David and says, what, what, what are the things that I've done with you didn't tell you that I would give you anything that you wanted? Not just need. What is it that makes us think like God isn't going to give us what will bring us joy? Real joy. Lasting joy. Not the kind that rusts and rots. You, you give up your mother and your brother and your sister and you'll get a hundred more in the kingdom of God. 
I'm not saying you're supposed to give up your family at all. But you see the point. Are we, are we seeing this? Because it got so much so that by common consent, the Christians would meet in Solomon's colonnade. And here's this thing. None of the other people, the non-Christians, dared join them. I think that's the, honestly, I think that's one of the most extraordinary comments in all Scripture. They highly respected him. Look, when, when somebody gets with Jim Jones or David Koresh or something like this, some cultish thing, we look at it and we say two things. We say, first of all, we understand why they're joining because human beings have this a tremendous need to bond and be part of a community, right? And these are broken, vulnerable people. Like ISIS is recruiting people that are lonely and they bring them into their cause. They give them a deeper purpose and they, they present some sort of community, which apparently means just drop a bomb on yourself and kill yourself. Okay, great community, but you're going to get it in heaven. I don't know what. You get the point. But the point is, is, see, we don't respect any of that. We don't respect people that go into a David Koresh or a Jim Jones. We think they're broken people. But here's people, and they're looking at them, and they're saying, what you're doing is phenomenal. It feels like in my heart what I should be doing. I don't want to do it because I don't really trust God, because I don't really want to do this, because I don't really... You see what I mean? I, I want to keep the control of this so that I can get what I want, what I think I need. Right? And what God is saying is, is oh, my, oh, my knee. <laughs> Thanks. There's so much more. The bounty that he wants to pour out on the people that can handle it, and it won't destroy them. The things that he wants to give are so rich and so full. And the one that is the easiest of all is this one that we're talking about today, the bonding. This is what this guy from TED figured out. This is what the researchers are finding. God made us to be one with each other. And when we're not, it hurts and we medicate. But when we've got it, we're fulfilled. It doesn't go away. You don't need more. You don't need another fix. You're getting a steady stream of umbilical corded life that is flowing back and forth between the two of you. And it brings you into fullness. And it's every bit as important as your relationship with God. I want to suggest to you that as great as the community was at that wedding, it's the Jesus Christ part of it that makes us be able to get all the way below the stereotype and become a whole nother reality. Which is that we would become one as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. So here's the thing about Lake Sam. When we do a sermon like this, we're always looking for how to make it sticky, how to make it work, how to make it stick with you. So here's the point, okay? We're not just going to be hearers only and not doers today. I recognize a lot of people are gone on vacation and so on, but it was a holiday weekend, and we wanted to do something that was sort of fitting with a holiday weekend. And we wanted to do something along this line. So here's what we're going to do. And Adam's going to explain the details on you for a second. But here's what we're going to do. Do you remember a few years ago, those of you who were here, that we had different age demographics go together to different rooms around the church? And how great that was? That you got to meet other people and so on? Well, here's what just happened recently to us that made us do this. One of our staff people was talking with somebody else. And we think of ourselves as very close and connected. And everybody knows each other and all that. And we recognize that really it's the staff that knows everybody. Not necessarily to you, because the staff member was talking with somebody, and the person said to them, and when they were talking, another family came up. 
And, and the person said, oh, man, I've really been, I've seen them before, and I kind of know them, and I'd really like to get to know them better. And the staff member kind of went, did you know that they live two houses from you? And they didn't. So here's what we've done, and he's going to show you in a second. But we're, we're going to rooms that are, that are geographic. And I'm asking you to do something in these rooms. Look, the introverts right now are saying, oh, I can go home now. Okay? I'm asking you to listen to the sermon and be a doer, not just a hearer. I'm asking you to actually go to the room and take the time to not only shake the hand and ask what they do, because that's always the first question, what do you do, right? You know what I mean? But what I'm asking you to do is, is I'm asking you to just take a minute and let the Lord do what he would do. We're not overly structuring it on purpose because we want to let the Lord make some connections. Here's one thing I am saying. You're not supposed to be one with every, you're supposed to be one with every person's place, but I don't want you to be best friends of every person in this room. That's too many friends, you can't do it. But what I can tell you is, is that there's a number of friendships that are in this room that God is intending to connect for life. There's something that he brought you here for that you have not seen. And I'm suggesting to you today, if you'll just go ahead and give this a shot, it's not going to take very long or anything else, if you'll just give this a shot, if you'll go to that room, and if you will meet some people, different ages, different everything, if you'll meet some people, let God start to stir something. And then, can I just say, be sure and follow up. If you meet somebody that's got some, there seems like there's something there, you know what I mean? You call us, we'll give you their number, or email, or whatever, you know? And you can contact them and say, hey, let's get together. Did we get it? Adam, take it. <laughs>